Hello? Hi, it's Robert. Do you want to be on the show? Never call me again. Hello, welcome. My name is Robert, and this is Never Call Me Again. Saxophonist, composer, producer, and educator Bobby Watson is a jazz performer with an aggressive, fluid style influenced by his early years with drummer Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers. A native of Kansas City? Let's give him a call. Hello. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Mr. Watson. How are you? Oh, fine, Robert. How are you doing? Not too bad. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You know, I'm I'm normally not nervous when... You know, I, I interview someone when I talk to someone. Today's a little different. I, different. I'm um, I'm pretty impressed with who you are and, and what you've done and, and what your career has, has meant to jazz. And so it, it is a great honor to have you here today. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the kind words. Well, we, we absolutely appreciate your music. And so you have a new album out, Keeping It Real. Yes, uh-huh. keeping it real. Uh, we were really blessed to be able to record it in January, uh, right before this whole COVID thing, and in New York at the uh, Sears Sound Studio with the Cats, you know. And so uh, that was timely. And and so this album is, and so this is Smoke Session Records, which is your label. Uh, no, Smoke Sessions is uh, it's uh, tied up with the club Smoke. Okay. This one, this one, yeah, the last two records I did, uh, uh, Made in America, and this one <clears throat> were on Smoke Sessions. I hadn't been with a label in a while since I was with Palmetto, and uh, in the interim, I did a couple of uh, uh, self-produced things, which we'll, I guess we'll get into later. Uh, you know, there was a Gates Barbecue Suite and also uh, Check Cash and Jay. I self-produced those during that time uh, in the mid-2000s, uh, around 2013, uh, around the 50th anniversary. Um, but yeah, yeah, this is, uh, Smoke Sessions is a label. They got their own uh, team and machine, and they do good. They do good work. And I didn't. I don't really have the money anymore to do it because it's, it's more than just going in the studio, paying the studio for their time, uh, paying the musicians for their time, and then you got to mix it and master it. And then after you get it done, you got to get it packaged with artwork. So you just send it to a person where they do all that. There's different independent companies that do all that. And so uh, that's extra money. So you pay for that stage and decide how many you're going to press up. Usually, the more you press, the cheaper it is. So you usually go with 2000 you know. And, uh, you know, and then you got the promotion in, which is more money. You need, you need a radio person and uh, you need a, um, uh, a print, print person to do it, PR. And get it in downbeat and all that stuff. So it's, it's a lot of work, you know. And so, and I had much success with um, my uh, releases. 
but I was, I was, I thought I'd let somebody else do it again. You know, especially since I know what they're doing and, and I know what, what it takes, you know, that's the one thing. Cause years ago we had, uh, New Note Records. We did a record called The Attitude and we did some sax quartet records, 29th Street sax quartet records on, on New Note. And, uh, Willie Williams did one, Curtis Lundy did one. Uh, Tom Barner, different people. We had a little catalog. And, uh, so we know the game, what it takes. You know, like I said in the beginning, it takes more than just going in the studio and making a, making a record. Cats go and say, I'm going to make a record. And even, and once they get it all pressed and they got the cover, then what do you do next? To get it on the radio and get it in, get it reviewed. All that stuff costs money too. Well, you've come a long way from um, being a, a young man with a clarinet um, playing Battle <laughs> battle Hymn of the Republic. And so yeah. tell me about that. Well, my, my grandfather, my mother's father, uh, Grandpa Wilkes, uh, Jesse Wilkes and Daisy Wilkes, my grandmother, uh, he, he always had a church. You know, when he didn't even have a building, uh, we would meet, we would have church service in, uh, different, uh, houses of his sons. Cause he had, uh, uh, six sons. And, uh, uh, my mother was the only, uh, girl out of all those boys, you know. And, um, so I grew up in the church and the grandpa, he used to always encourage music in the church. So I grew up watching my dad because my dad, grandpa would love to hear my dad play the tenor sax in the church. And, you know, he wasn't a professional. He was in aviation, but uh, he would always encourage my dad to play in the church and he would play a A and B selection. So I grew up watching that. And so uh, it used to have a program in the fifth grade. Uh, you would go out and get a chance to pick an instrument. You, it'd usually be in the school cafeteria. It'd be like a little instrument fair where all the, uh, uh, music companies in town. And, uh, and I was in Kansas then, uh, would come by, set up, uh, uh, Schmidt Music and Jenkins and all these stores would set up and they'd have all these instruments, all kinds of instruments, uh, for rent and you would go around with your folks you know and you would say daddy i like this one and you know and but that's after they already screened you out in the fourth grade they had this thing called the flutophone i'm not jumping around robert but no, no. okay so they had the flutophone which is like a, a recorder but it's easier to play and so that's where they test your musical aptitude in the fourth grade so if you make it through and show some skills on a flutophone then you would be able to graduate and start band in the fifth grade and that would weed out the people that just didn't have it you know <laughs> and so if you made it to that point you're like yeah and so all these music stores would be in the cafeteria and and they had a program where you could rent with the option to buy so that way even though their kids got over the first hump they could get an instrument, and then if they show promise after the first year, 
then you had the option to buy or if your kid really, you know, not for them, you could return the instrument with no, no penalty. So I wanted a saxophone. I wanted a saxophone. And, uh, my, the band director and my dad teamed up, I'll be maybe get a clarinet. So I say all that to say, I really wanted a saxophone. So I played the clarinet and I would always take stuff off by ear. And like I said, my grandpa used to always encourage us to play in church. So the minute he knew that I got an instrument, he was encouraging me to play in church. And I'd already been playing piano. And I did a little piano playing in the service, for service in church already. So when he finally got that clarinet, next thing I knew, I'm up in front of the congregation. And the only thing I could play was the Battle Hymn of the Republic. <laughs> and, when I got, and when I got through, the, the church said, Amen. You know, that was my first public performance. That's amazing. You know, I, I wonder, you know, listening to you talk, and, and so, you know, I know the, the fifth grade was a long time for me, a long time ago for me, and, and so you're a little older than I am. I wonder what, you know, the fellow students, the, the your fifth grade music teacher, um, your grandfather, I wonder what they would think if, you know, they were sitting here today looking at all you have accomplished musically. I mean, it is unbelievable um, to, well, to fathom that, you know, someone can be, you know, I'm in the fifth grade. I, I want to play the, the saxophone. I, I, I get, you know, bamboozled into the clarinet and eventually become this, this legendary jazz musician. That, that's just unbelievable. <laughs> well, I've truly been blessed, and I think that's my calling. Um, you know, when I've taken piano lessons, uh, my uh, Miss Thomas, Miss Thompson, Miss Thompson, Miss Thomas, uh, she she always knew. She said she told my mother, "Your son's going to be a band director or something." <laughs> you know, I always had I always had a passion for music, just always, and. Um, um, the other thing might have been uh, meteorology, which was actually a plan B, you know, and you really shouldn't have a plan B as you move through life. But when I was in the uh, fourth grade, uh, they had career day. You remember career day? I do. You guys have you guys have career day? We did. Yeah. And uh, we all had the, sometimes people come that had the careers but we had this book from A to Z with different careers and their pay in it. Did you guys ever see one of those? I don't, I don't remember that, but I do remember, um, I remember career day. And, 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 and so occasionally, you know, somebody, somebody would come and it, it would be interesting. And, and, you know, they would tell you all about what they do and, and, you know, and so those little gears in your head would start turning and you're just like, Hey, I want to do that. There were a million things I wanted to do when I was a kid. <laughs> Yeah, you know, because I, I, I always knew I wanted music. So I'm in the fifth grade, and they had this book. It was like a dictionary. And every every kid, they had enough for every kid, you know? I mean, and we had, it was like careers, you know? And so, man, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm coming from a family where my dad uh, grew up hearing him play, but knew he was in aviation. He also tuned pianos and repaired instruments 
as he is working his way through ground school, getting his different flight ratings, moving up the chain, you know, like getting a black belt, you know, like kind of like martial arts or anything. But, uh, uh, so I'm used to getting three square meals a day. Uh, there really was no crisis in our house about food or the utilities being on. I just knew that, you know, we got, we never got a new bicycle. Dad would get a used bicycle and make us paint it, you know, sand it down and, and paint it and make it look like new, you know. And, uh, you know, hand me down clothes, all this kind of stuff. But it wasn't poverty. And so I'm sitting there in fifth grade thinking all this kind of stuff with a roof over your head. And I, I go straight to the musician. I want to be a musician. How much they make? <laughs> you know, because in this book, it had plumber, you know, this is in the 60s. So plumber makes from 35 to 40 or 25 to 30. A thousand a year. Uh, doctor makes 80 to 90 or whatever, 60 to 70, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Fireman makes this, a dentist makes this, you know, et cetera. Carpenter makes this. And so, you know, A, B, C, D, all through the, all through this book. So I go to the end, I go to the musician <laughs> and I look up and I go straight to the, uh, salary, you know, income, annual income. And, and it said, it said, this is no lie, Roberts. It said zero to question mark. Oh. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's difficult. And I'm like, yeah, and it's, and it's explained. He says, Horowitz makes this, Elvis makes this, musicians who play on the weekends can make this, musicians who, uh, you know, different levels of musicians. So there was no, it wasn't like, the plumber makes this as a musician. It depends. It was so broad. It's Robert. It scared the hell out of me. Excuse my language. I was. I was like, what? You know, not even scared. I'm disappointed. Let's put it that way. I was like, dang. So now I'm thinking, sitting at the desk, because you know, at the end of the class, they're gonna ask you, well, which which uh, profession, you know, which career did you guys, you know, see yourself doing. So I'm like, oh man, this is this is a dilemma. So <laughs> I said, well, my dad's in aviation. Uh, he, uh, he he knows about the weather. I like the weather. I have a little weather house. I said that's still creative. You know, think about what can I do that's creative, and I could play my horn on the weekend because that was my model. My dad, he was in aviation, but he still played his horn. And so did my friend Gary. But I had a lot of parents that you know would play in church and. So they still had music in their life. So I, so I went back to my, there was a plan B. And so I, I, I went, I said, well, I like, I like to be a weatherman. So I went to weatherman and it said, see meteorologist. I said, ooh, you know, so I learned a new word. Meteorologist, that's even cooler, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a meteorologist. Yeah, so I can deal with that, you know? <laughs> and then it had a salary. So I said, yeah, that's what I'll do, you know? And so I, I live with that vision. Um, until one day my friend Gary Gardner, God rest his soul, uh, he said, I kept talking about this meteorology. I would never say weatherman. And, uh, he said, look, Robert, man, let's face it, man. You got the keys to the band room. You're the first one in, you're the last one out. 
You stay in the band room all day. You play music. Man, you don't want to do like our dads do when they just play on the weekends, man. You could, you're a musician. You know, I this was in like eighth grade, seventh grade. And then, uh, they, you know, and he said, you know, face it, you know, and then that's when I really made the shift. And I, uh, and I, I knew that I was going to have some ups and downs and, and some trials and tribulations, but I, I had to, at that age, say, I think I'm willing to do it. Yeah, that's unbelievable. It's, it's terrifying, um, you know, to, to think that what it is I really want to do, what I'm passionate about is the thing that can put me on this scale of starvation to, to, you know, just unbelievable success. And, and that's the thing is, is that in order to do anything, whether, whether it's a, a career in the arts or, or, you know, a plumber, meteorologist, it doesn't matter what you do in life. It, it, you are, I don't believe in luck. I don't believe that, mm. you know, you just get lucky. I believe that, you know, th- there might be some opportunity, but it is absolutely, you are going to be recognized, acknowledged, promoted, successful in life, mostly due to your passion, your work, your your, your work ethic, that sort of thing. And so I've got the title track to Keeping It Real. I would like to play a little bit of that. All right. Bobby the meteorologist Watson. <laughs> you know, and it's funny, you know, you listen to something like that and I, and so that that actually is that's my favorite track off the album. Oh, um, unfortunately, you. it's it's 7 minutes and 8 seconds long, so I'm not Exactly. Play, you know what? I, no. and, and so I listen to that on my time and and so yeah. when we when when I put this show up, I will put all the links. I want everybody to be able to go and and listen to the album. I want you to go purchase the album. Don't just listen to it. Go purchase it. But um we'll 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 let them we'll let them listen to the whole thing on on their own dime and their own time. Um yes. you know and so it's amazing to listen to something like that and think that you know we might have possibly had things gone differently, been able to catch you at the Green Lady or the Blue Room, you know, somewhere mm-hmm. on a weekend, you know, if if you weren't doing the weather, if you weren't, you know, doing anything else. And <laughs> I'm really glad that your your friend said, hey, um, you've got the keys to the band room and, and, you know, that's where you need to be and that's what you do. And um, 
You know, I think you definitely made the right choice. It's it's so difficult to to look at the possibilities and, and encourage, you know, someone. It's, it, I think it can be difficult to encourage someone, especially your child or your friend, someone that you invested in in some way, to encourage them to pursue a dream sometimes. Um, I think it's really important, you know. And, and so yeah. I know. Go ahead. Oh, no. Um. When you, I didn't want to lose my thought when you had mentioned you have to encourage someone to go to that and follow their dream. Well, uh, Aaron, my son, he's a, uh, executive sous chef in New York. And they, both of my kids had music in their life. And Aaron played the saxophone. He, he had a little curved soprano sax at first. He started when he was six. And I didn't give him the lessons. I sent him across the street to my good friend um, over there. And he taught him. And I don't know whether that was a mistake, but I didn't want... Uh, there's a lot of musicians that uh, they get right on their kid, they put an instrument in their hand, and they don't want to teach them, and then they turn out to be a musician. you know. But I wanted my kid to come to it like I did. So anyway... Uh, he's an executive sous chef and he's in a creative thing. Both of them knew that they didn't want to do music, but they knew they had to do something creative. And they saw up close and personal me and, and Pam, my wife's uh, struggles and downs and ups and the tears we shed. I mean, literally tears, not figuratively. I mean, literally crying. And they saw that and they knew that at the bo- at the end of the day, we were both were happy. So they saw that too. But, but they knew that music wasn't going to be their thing, you know, because they saw the whole thing about coming behind your parents and doing you know, very smart. And they said, no, I don't want to be uh, Bobby Watson's son trying to play alto or saxophone. But they wanted to do something. So they, my son's an executive sous chef. My daughter's a... Uh, 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 a digital online photographer. She's a photographer. She went to Syracuse for <clears throat> fine art photography. She got a master's in in website design. You see what I mean? She's like a nerd like that, right? And she she's done my record covers. But they're still they're both living their life. So me and Pam are musicians, and then our kids are out there freelancers. Well, this family. <laughs> We don't have a doctor or something like this, you know, that has a stable income with a steady pension building. You see what I mean? Right. So they're living the dream too, but, you know, we encourage them all the time. And I think that, you know, it's going to work out for them too. You know, the, the careers in the arts today, I, I think there's, there's this, there's this transition that's happening, especially with, with online media. And so with your daughter, for instance, um, you know, I know online content creators, um, if you're good, you can be wildly successful. I mean, it is unbelievable the, the quality of work that people are, are putting in. And, you know, I was a, I was a chef for 30 years. And so I was, I was educated. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I was educated in New York. Um, worked at Balthazar there in New York and merged, um, worked in DC and, and a lot in Kansas city. And, 
you know, the thing is, is, is my experience was a lot like Aaron's in that, you know, like anybody in life, you know, you, you decide that this is what you want to do and you have absolutely, you know, nothing to go on. You have no training, you have no education, you have no real clue as to, to how to, to do it. And so kind of like him, I, I just kind of hung out and, and asked for jobs and said, Hey, you know what? Yeah. I will, I will follow you around the kitchen. I will do the dishes. I will anything and every, whatever no one else wants to do, I will do that. And you will hopefully see my work ethic and what, you know, all the things nobody wants to do and maybe, you know, start elevating me into some of these other things. You have, you don't know the look on my face. I am like, you're smiling from ear to ear. Because that's what exactly what Aaron had to do, you know. It, what you're talking, what you're saying, you, and you know, in a lot of professions, that's where it's at. You know, you know, you don't come in with your resume and your qualifications. Well, yes, but I mean, you don't come in with a list of demands and my people will get back to your people, you know, kind of thing. So I, I, I'm, I'm speechless, Robert. <laughs> People, Excuse me for interrupting. No, it's okay. People really want to, they want to know what it is, you know, what you can do and what you can consistently do. Is, is the work ethic there? Is is the passion there? It's kind of, um, and so I know, I actually know a lot about you. And so I always try to research, you know, a guest and, and know as much about them as possible before sitting down to them. I, I think it just is a lot more respectful of the people. You know, I'm asking for your time and, you know, the least I can do is know a little, little something about you. And so I know that when you were in New York, and so this would have been in the in the 70s, um, yeah. you had an opportunity, I think on his birthday, to play, initially play for, and then play with Art Blakely. Mhm. Well, are you talking about his his hundredth anniversary? I think um, I think I heard somewhere that you were you were in New York City and kind of independent, just kind of joining in and playing oh. here and there. Oh yes, yes, Robert. Excuse me. Uh, yes, that's when Art met me on his birthday. That's right. Uh, a friend of mine uh, brought Art over to where I was sitting in because Curtis Fuller, the great trombonist, had taken me under his wing and he was a messenger and he kept telling me, you got to meet the boo. You know, you got to meet the boo. So they call him the boo, you know, Buhena. Because his uh, Islamic name is Abdullah Ibn Buhena. So everybody called him either Buhena or Boo, you know, and Art, of course. But, um, so, uh, my other friend, uh, uh, King, Mr. King, he, uh, they picked him up at the, met him at the, once he got in New York, he just got flew in from Canada, brought him up to the uh, Jimmy Ryan uh, uh, Storyville, where I was playing. I was sitting there with uh, Curtis Fuller. These were all Basie cats. And at the time, Curtis Fuller was with uh, Count Basie. And so during that time in the 70s, when bands were off, 
the big bands because they had Buddy Rich and different big bands. Buddy Herman, they were still active. Duke Ellington, Count Basie, you know. And so when cats would end up in New York, they would uh, have gigs in the club while they were in New York. And because they were all great musicians, I was with the uh, yeah, Jimmy Forrest, um, uh, Harold Mayburn, Butch Miles, um, Victor Sproles, uh, Chris Woods, sitting there with these cats along with Curtis, Wayman Reed, all these trumpet players that, from the Basie band, they ended up at Storyville. So I'm up there sitting in, and Joe brings him, Joe Kingston brings him down in to the, uh, the club and buys him a bottle of champagne because it's his birthday. And probably told him, you got to hear this little kid. And so that's how I met him, you know. Huh. And uh, he he got up on the stage in the middle of a song and uh, exchanged the sticks with Butch Miles and got on the bandstand and started playing behind me. All of a sudden, the feel of the drums changed, you know. It's like going down the road doing 60 and a, a big-ass semi, excuse my language, a big semi comes and bumps you doing 65. You know, you feel like a little, you know, in the air and the rhythm. And you look back and art's on the drums. And uh, that, that's how we started. That's unbelievable. And so, you know, you know, someone can look at that story and they can, and so this goes back to what we were talking about earlier about, you know, work and, and, and perseverance versus luck. And, and someone, someone easily can look at that story and say, oh, well, he was so lucky that, you know, he was able to, to be there at that day and that time. And it, it was Art's birthday and, and, you know, they got to play together and, and this started this, this friendship, this relationship, this, this opportunity. And, you know, that's not the way it works. The way it works is, is all of those things happened and you were playing and, and he saw that he was like, Hey, you know what? He's, he liked what he heard. And so he, he probably thought, you know what? I'm going to get up here on the stage. I'm going to get right behind him and I'm going to give him this little bump of, of 65 miles an hour. Let's see how he mm -hmm. handles it. And, and so obviously you handled it pretty well, well enough to, um, to go on and to be the musical director. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I want to give you that. You know, Robert, here's a, a thing, uh, you know, on, on Facebook, and I've toured a lot and on all levels of uh, uh, amenities and lodging and travel. So <laughs> it's so funny because most of the time it's not top level, but it's still beautiful. Right. You know, you could be on a, in the Mediterranean and you open your window of your room and you're just seeing a view that you just want to start, you just start taking pictures. Cause it's like, oh my God, I'm from, I'm from Amherst, Amherst, Massachusetts. And now I'm on the Riviera. My God, how blessed am I, right? And, uh, and that overwhelms you. Um, and I, I'm relating this, Robert, to say my success and that story I just told you about meeting Art. The, the underbelly, of all this, and you alluded to that, is the work and the sacrifice it takes. Because that night when I met Art Blakey, I'd been married about a month to Pam. Mm -hmm. 
Pam, me and Pam were in New York. And that night, I wasn't really feeling good. And as a newlywed husband, uh, Pam said, well, oh, baby, why don't you stay home? You know, so you're not really feeling good. And I said, you know, I got to go out. So when I first got to New York, I was going out every night. And me and Pam would go out every night. And we had places around every club where we could sit and hear the music for free. Sometimes it was in the back of the club near a vent. Sometimes it was right in the front of the club where you had a big picture window, picture window where you could see. We were just fixtures, me and Pam, sitting there, listening to all the music, boomers, all the clubs, you know, the bottom line and Village Gate and the Vanguard. And we'd be there and listening because we couldn't afford to get in. And the, and the cats started to see us and ask our name, and I always had my horn with me. And I got to meet a lot of guys, me and Pam, just sitting out. They remember us sitting out in front of the club. And I played on the streets. Steve Coleman, Marvin Smitty Smith, Vincent Herring. There's a lot of really famous musicians today that if, if people that know about this music that I just mentioned, they, we were on the street playing. And we passed the hat. I learned the art of that. Um, and so all of those things I'm telling you was going out every night. And the night I went out at night, because I had an invitation to sit in with Curtis Fuller, and I walked out the door. That was the first time I felt my Pam was upset with me, you know. And when I turned that key as a, in a relationship, I felt like, I gotta do what I gotta do, but this ain't this ain't pretty, you know. And and on that night, that's the night I met our baby. And when I came home, I opened the door, and I was so proud to say, I said, Pam, guess what? I'm a jazz messenger. That's you amazing. Know? That's absolutely amazing. You know, it um, it's got to be difficult to. You know, and so you're you're fresh out of school. You're you're both performers, and you're in New York City, one of the most competitive you know cities in the world. Thinking, you know, I'm going to starve to death and be divorced in a month, and you, go, <laughs> you know, you know what I mean. And and, and yes. that's you know that's keeping it real. Um, and so the, <laughs> you, yeah. And so, but the thing is, is you go out and, you know, you've upset your wife, you're not feeling well, and you come back with this amazing opportunity. And so you were, you were with Art Blakely until 1981. That's correct. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, during that time, I, I stayed up under his armpit, you know, um, in the beginning, when I first got in the band, I couldn't get away from it. All the other cats had a place to stay, but I still was finding my footing. Like I said, I got with our Blakey, but I still didn't have an apartment, Robert, you know? Pam and I were living in, when we, when I graduated off of, uh, Jim Green, who was Art Blakey's valet, road manager, et cetera, I, uh, I was living with Jim Green on his couch. So after the gigs, Jim would, we drive back after the gigs and Art would uh, park his car in front of Jim Green's house and put the flashers on and come up and hang out at Jim Green's house all night. 
So I'm like trying to decompress from the gig and Art's in the, he's in the room, in the other room and coming in and out. And, you know, I can't get, I can't, I had no uh, downtime in the beginning, right? you know, so we got real close and closer than most of the guys in the band because they could go their way and decompress and do their thing until the next day and, and meet on the bandstand. But me, it was unceasing, you know, and, uh, you know, and that, and it was great because I knew it was a once in a lifetime opportunity. And, um, uh, it, it really challenged my marriage. I have to say, when you were saying, I would be, you know, you weren't, you weren't, you weren't far from wrong, you know, because those guys had me in their clutches because they, they knew they had a fresh one. <laughs> I was like a sponge. He said, oh, we got one here. So man, they, they took me and took me under their wing and put me under their armpits and raised me, you know, they, they, they finished raising me as men, you know? Well, you definitely, and, um, I think probably have made them very proud. I hope they are, you know, um, you know, I was, I was lucky enough to, uh, um, uh, have a lot of people that are not with me anymore see my success or what they call success, you know, because that's all relative. But the main thing, living my dream, you know. You know, it's funny that you bring up um, the idea of, of someone that is no longer with us. And so I kind of wanted to talk, to talk to you about somebody that's no longer with us. Um, and, and so to, to kind of tie this all together, you and the New York Times have something in common. In 2019, you um, released Bird at 100. And mm-hmm. August 26th of 2020, the New York Times did an, a, a pretty nice article on Charlie Yardbird Parker. And so the Kansas City Star, on the other hand... Um, uh, you know, Charlie is, you know, he's a native son. He was, he was born in Kansas City, Kansas. He, he spent much of his career um, putting Kansas City on the map, you know, as far as jazz. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there were, there were crickets. They, uh, yes. they said nothing. And so, you know, I, I actually have a bit of a track from that, from that album the um, 2019 Bird at 100. And I, I thought, you know, it'd be appropriate, um, you know, to play this for, you know, those individuals at the Kansas City Star. Um, and the track is These Foolish Things. So, um, you know, we, we, we hope that they will, they will do better in the future that, um, 
you know, that's the thing is, is, um, you know, when, you know, prior to the pandemic, I spent a lot of time, you know, in the jazz district. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time, uh, you know, outside the jazz district, I would go to the green lady and, um, you know, unfortunately these are places, you know, and so a lot of these places, I, even without the pandemic, you know, I'm in this huge wheelchair now, so I can't actually get into some of these places to, to listen to live music. But the thing is, mm-hmm. is, um, you know, this is a, this is a, a history and a heritage that, um, Kansas city is incredibly rich in. And, um, I remember, I don't know, it might've been 10 years ago. I, I, you know, I don't remember if I read it or if I heard it somewhere. It was, it was part of a conversation. Um, somebody was saying, you know, you know, jazz is dead, jazz is dying. And I'm thinking, you know, and so I have, and so I'm sitting here talking to you and you are very much alive, very much recording, very much active. And, um, you know, I've, I've actually got another jazz musician that I'm going to be talking to in the coming weeks, um, out of Chicago. And, um, you know, she is thriving and she is younger. And I know that a lot of our, our mutual friends on social media are young jazz musicians. Um, Mm -hmm. and they are putting in work. You know, there's a, there's one guy, I don't know if, I think we're both friends with him, Brian. Um, I think his last name is Steve or he's a drummer. Do you know him? Oh, sure, Brian Stever. Yeah, and yeah. So he's, he, he's one of ours. He's one of our UMKC graduates. He and so he does this. Um, he he gets on every single day on Facebook and Instagram, and you know does a does a drum pro- progression at at a different tempo. And, That's um, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Adam. I mean the. Uh, at, uh, Dawson, Alan Dawson, uh, drum ritual. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, that, it's a legendary thing. I watched that too, you know, Robert. I do too. I watched it. I watched him speed it up and I had him come over and give me a couple of lessons on drums because we moved last year, thank God, and we have room now for a set of drums and a nice piano. So I've always, you know, I used to mess around with drums more when I was younger. So anyway, I've had. Uh, uh, Brian Stevert can't say enough about him. He's a beautiful soul. I mean, he's one of the, one of the kindest human beings I've ever met. You know, and it comes out of his playing. I I actually got addicted to it, and so you know, and it would be like every morning around nine a.m. You know, nine yeah. nine oh three. Yeah, me too. yeah. <laughs> and so I remember the this last year. You know, when so he had gone all the way through it. And, and, you know, when he had done his last post, I, I, I was kind of sad. I was in, and so I, I said to him, I said, you know, Hey, um, I'm going to miss it. I mean, it had become part of my day. It was every Same morning here. around nine, nine Oh three, he would post and, and I would get impatient. I, I got a little expectant. And so if he was running a few minutes late, I would, you know, I'd be sitting there, <laughs> you know, with yeah. my iPad in my hand, Brian, where are you? And, um, <laughs> and so we, we had been spoiled, but, um, it's amazing to me, you know, all of my friends on social media, almost all of them are, are artists, whether it's, you know, performance art, whether it's, you know, painting, sculpting, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I look at some of these and some of these people are unbelievably talented. I look at some of them and I'm just like, 
This is some of the most amazing things I've seen or heard in my life. And well, you know, you 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 like that too, Robert. Now, I want to just say, you know, because that's how we, you know, kind of connected when I saw your your art, man. And then I was like, my God, that's unique. You know, I've I've, it, I've never seen anything like that. You know, your whole process, the way you do it, it's, it's unique, man. You know. You know, I did I that. I appreciate that. I did, and so I, for people that don't know what we're talking about, is I I did a jazz series, um, and so it was a series of of digital drawings and paintings, and I had reached out, and so I had done several people who who are no longer with us, and so then I, I decided that because I'm doing this jazz series and I live in Kansas City, I should absolutely do some living jazz legends who are from the area and um you were one of the people that i contacted and and you actually were of the people that were living that i contacted you were the only one that responded and oh um, my goodness yeah people are busy you know i think sometimes you know and so you know I, i was contacting people on facebook messenger and people don't always look at those messages some people have them yeah. just completely turned off it can be bothersome and so I, I had contacted you and said, hey, you know, I, I, I actually did a piece on you. It, and, and so it had not been displayed publicly. Um, no one outside of my home had seen it or even knew that it existed. Because the thing is, is I, I really kind of wanted to have your permission to well, to display something like that. It's very personal to, to just do a piece yeah. on somebody and then just here it is out there in the world and... and you don't want somebody to, you know, be happening happen along through their day, see this and think, well, what is this? You know, who who did this and, and you know, why? And you were incredibly gracious about it. And, you know, the piece the piece was actually more influenced by you than you probably think. And so the style that I use, and so, you know, I have ALS and so I don't I I don't have very purposeful movement with my hands, and so I can use them, but I can't control them. And, um, and so I, I really had to reinvent how I create to accommodate my disability. And, and so doing a a jazz series seemed very appropriate for me because here is my impression with, with, with that piece and with, with how you play and, and, and what jazz means to me. Um, you know, I can look at... You know, and so I, I'm sitting here listening to a, to a song, and there are all these very seemingly random things going on between pianos and drums and saxophones and, and trumpets and trombones. And so there are all of these very seemingly unconnected things happening. And when you put them all together and you listen, all of these things that, and, and sometimes, I mean, you can listen and it, and it almost borders on absurd and you're thinking, how is this going to connect? And, and it, it mm-hmm. you know what I mean? It, it's, it's almost like yeah. this stuff just moving around, bumping into each other. You put it all together <laughs> and it sounds absolutely amazing. And so what I wanted to do with the piece was some very random shapes and strokes and, and, Make it very, very up close look, you know, very, very disoriented and and discombobulated. And then, Mm. you know, from a foot, two feet away, you know, what you see is Bobby Watson. 
and and so I really, you know what I mean. I really wanted to capture that, wow. that what jazz meant to me, and and wow. how I listen to music and how I hear it. And you know, so the the piece was actually yeah, that's It was it was just really enjoyable to do, and that was actually one of my most popular um, series. And so I did I did I did one for that. I did a, a dance series. Um, mm-hmm. Philip Koenig, who is a, a photographer in Kansas City. I don't, do you know Philip? Um, probably when I see him, I, I don't think the name doesn't right. ring a bell right now. He took a picture of of my girlfriend Heather's daughter, who she was she was at the dance conservatory there at UMKC and did an just mm-hmm. unbelievable performance. And so Philip um, was the photographer that evening, and he took the photo, and then you know he posted it and commented that. You know, he just thought it was the most amazing photo of the evening, the most amazing performance, and and we were very gracious. You know, we really appreciated mm-hmm. him. Him, you know, an artist looking at another artist and saying, "Hey, this is yeah. amazing." That's a huge accolade. And yeah, um, <laughs> and so I I reimagined the piece, the the photo that he took. I I turned it into a a digital piece and and so I reimagined it and then I reached out to him and said hey you know I I did this the piece is not for sale it's it's hanging in our home never been viewed I I try to always be mm-hmm. you know as as yeah you know I don't want to step over bounds with people well, I appreciate that and I know you do too you know coming towards yourself yeah, yeah let yeah. me ask you how how big is the piece you know, I only have the picture you sent. What's the dimensions of the piece? It is actually two foot by two and a half foot. Uh-huh. So it is a large piece. Wow. I um, you know what I, I I probably need to I probably need to send you the piece at some point soon, and so you can. Oh, I, so you can I wouldn't. You know, <laughs> I, you know, I didn't. You know. <laughs> You're just oh, you're knocking me off my feet now. I mean, I, I'm so, oh gosh. We'll talk. Yeah, thank you. I mean, you know, I would love to have that piece, but uh, we'll talk. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Um. Thank you. That 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 you just blew me away. Yeah. I want to play some tracks from from various albums, and so. I actually have two tracks left that I that I kind of want to play and talk about, and so I'd, I'd like to play one, and and then just kind of discuss how the piece came about, um, who's included on the track, and 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 what the track means to you. Okay. I'm sure you recognize this. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, here comes Kansas City Port Laureate. Two score and ten years ago, Martin shared his dream for justice to roll down like a mighty stream. A dream rooted in reality and the solemn prospect that he had come to the nation's capital to cash a 100-year-old check. Like so many folks in the hood with bills stacked high enough for a bungee cord jump, anxiously looking forward to the first of the month, with 300,000 black voices demanding their pay, 
August 28th, 1963 was check cashing day. And while America had sufficient currency in her bloated account, and black folks were only requesting a fair amount, like frogs playing basketball on a rubber court, the check still bounced. <clears throat> the first of the month has passed 600 times since Martin uttered those exalted lines, I have a dream. that phrase in such high esteem, but there was another Martin who also dreamed. His name was Trayvon, and along with a bag of Skittles and a bottle of tea, his dreams were buried six feet deep. Slavery never really ended. It just changed forms, from sharecropping to wage restrictions to welfare moms. As Martin declared in reference to so-called emancipation in 1863, 150 years later, the Negro is still not free. A brother finally made it to the White House. But even a black president cannot correct the problem of over one million black men in the prison industrial complex. Or how, like so many autumn leaves, bodies of brown boys pile up in city streets. Yes, the new Jim Crow has enormous wings and he loves to fly off with colored dreams. But back in 63, Martin also penned these lines. Justice too long delayed is justice denied. And don't label me an angry black man because believe you me, I understand. When we follow the vision of Dr. King, white folks are full partners in the dream. But in our nation's attempt to fix the problem of race, you ain't never gonna fix what you can't face. So listen up, Uncle Sam. Here we stand with this 150-year-old check in our tired black hand. There's nothing else to talk about, nothing left to say, but cough it up, America. It's check cashing day. And so that is the title track from Check Cashing Day, your 2013 album. Yeah. That um, the poet, oh Robert, his name just escaped me. I can't believe this. Glenn North. Um, Glenn North. Thank you. Goodness, I was so emotionally 
uh, overwhelmed. I haven't, I haven't heard this in a long time. I don't really listen uh, to the CDs and stuff when they come out because by the time it came out, you probably listened to the whole record maybe a hundred times, you know, minimum. Right. <laughs> you know, looking for, you know, make it as good as possible, listening to the sound, changing this, tweaking this, you know. And I just got uh, overwhelmed by uh, Glenn's, Glenn's words and uh, the whole presentation. And uh, this whole thing started with uh, <laughs> one of my Italian friends said, Bobby, you need to, you, this is the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington. I said, yeah, I know, I know, I know. You should do something, Martin Luther King, you know. You should put music to the I Have a Dream speech. And I'm like, yeah, okay, okay, okay. You know, because he, he had a good idea, but you know, he's pushing me. And so uh, I, I, I did the I Have a Dream speech when I was in high school, even with my voice. For some reason, they picked me and the way I pronounced my S's and my, you know, <laughs> that whole nine. They, they picked me to do the Martin Luther King speech. Maybe it was because they wanted me to, whatever. But um, um, so to me, Robert, that was kind of played out for me. And so as I started doing research on the I Have a Dream speech, uh, I realized that that was only part of the whole speech. You know, there's a whole big part of the speech that uh, you have to go and read about it. It's only broadcast usually on his birthday on MSNBC because uh, they copyrighted that whole speech. Martin went over and had it copyrighted right away. And he had been working on the I Have a Dream part. He did it in Detroit, that part. He did it in uh, um, uh, Memphis. And he had an entourage to travel with him. And uh, Mahalia Jackson was part of that. They just, they, they would go with him to give him more support and, you know, and just be a part of it. So, I want to do something different because I've heard that I have a dream speech being uh, done so many times. And one of the biggest part of his speech where he says, we've come here to Washington to cash a moral check, which just came up insufficient funds. And so bouncing it off Pam and my daughter, he said, oh yeah, check cashing day. He came there to cash a moral check written by the United States that came up insufficient funds. So I took the whole premise of that. And again, as we were talking earlier, they always want to, media and Facebook and everything, they want to show you the shine. You know, I mean, I am so proud of and blessed to be uh, uh, in a position to have success. But you got to see the underbelly, you know, like the part that I don't want to see sausage being made. You know, I just want to eat it, you know. And right. that's how the whole, you know, that's kind of how the world is, you know. So I wanted to go into the underbelly of this thing when Martin was there because a large part of his speech, you know, is pretty uh, cutting edge, radical, you know, and warning and foreboding, you know. But then at the end, he had been working on that I Have a Dream thing, you know, a few times working it. And so when he was there, he was getting toward the end of his script, and Mahalia Jackson said, tell him about the dream, Martin. 
tell him about the dream. You know, but Martin, man, he broke off. He broke off into the I have a dream. I actually have the portion of the speech. Um, yes, you do. Do you, do you want to hear it? Yes, I would love to hear it. Let's listen. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. <laughs> <laughs> But we refuse to believe that the Bank of Justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. And so we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. <laughs> Yeah. You know, oh, um, you know, your your 2013 Check Cashing Day album, um, especially, you know, this track with Glenn North is. Um, yeah, it is so unbelievable. And, and, and you know, and so you know, a couple of things about this. When when I found this album, you know, the thing that the thing there was a few things that 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 kind of stood out to me um you know number one i mean first of all it is just unbelievable and so you know getting glenn north on there and and letting him do his thing and and to your music it is incredibly moving it is and sadly it's incredibly relevant even today and and so you know we and so we we had a lot of issues in 2020 and um you know, we had um, let's let's call it a month, two months of of protests, and and everybody on social media was up at arms and and very vocal, and you know, now it's it's quiet again. Everything is quiet, and and mm-hmm. I every day I wonder why is it quiet? Why are we quiet? Because here's the thing, um, I I think the response to you know, the murders that we had this last year, um, I think a lot of people responded, um, 
like it was brand new, like this just was something that had never happened. Mm. I think the the thing we learned in 20, the thing I learned in 2020, I can't speak for anybody else. The the thing that I learned in in 2020 is that um, people tend to, people tend to things, um, tend to only react to things when those things somehow make them uncomfortable, endanger their prosperity, um, you know, challenge their comfort, um, their security. And, and so here's the thing is, is we have an entire population of, of our country, of our society, of, of our people who, who deal with this each and every day. And so this is not a brand new thing. Matter of fact, this album was from 2013. And so, you know, and, and, <laughs> and we know that this has been an issue for, you know, on 2000, in 2013, we know this had been an issue for 150 years. And so it continues to be an issue. And I yeah. wanted to play the album. Thank I wanted, you. you're welcome. I thank you for doing it. I wanted to discuss it. Um, you know, and so I don't know Glenn North, and and so I went and I looked into him a little bit, and and have listened to some of his stuff. He is unbelievable, isn't he? Yeah. Oh my goodness, we got off onto a rocky start when we met, you know. But that just shows you human stuff, because most of the people that I'm very with have been very close to. We we didn't hit it off right away. I mean, you know, there's a little misunderstanding. You know, whatever, you know, little, it wasn't like love at first sight, you know. But man, uh, the more I listen to him and uh, he has his own voice and his own delivery. And so he's innovative on so many levels. And what he did to my music and what he put on it just blew me away. And I had never uh, stepped out that far in terms of putting out what I feel, what I know, what I've read, what I've learned. And the vocal, uh, the word vocal part of it puts her on another level, makes it really hit home. You know, because like Dark Days, I, I did that back when Mandela was still in prison. You know, I saw a small casket on the top of a man uh, in the uh, Herald Tribune when I was overseas. And then I wrote that Dark Days. And that's another one that still goes on and on. Still has a shelf life. But uh, he, Glenn just illuminated every song he's on. I, we sat and talked about it. And we took notes. And I told him what I wanted. I didn't want it to be, you know, I wanted, you know, how what I was comfortable with. You know what I mean? But I still... Wanted to make people uncomfortable, but he's 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 brilliant, man. Yeah, I I don't know that there could have been any way to have done this better. I mean, this was, you know, the thing is, is if um if if there's any way that you can set and and listen to this track, listen to this album, and and not be moved and and not um understand that we we have this ongoing issue and this issue has been addressed again and again and again and you know the the words this year was we have to do better we well we've 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 needed to do better for a long long time and you know some point we have to 
we have to sit down, we have to talk, we have to we have yeah. to figure this out. Um you know, it, it, I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to be in any other country, okay? I've been a traveling and I'm not uh, uh nationalistic or whatever, but in terms of just from my senses and what I see in the, and where I've been, uh, I'd rather be here, you know. This is where my 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 battle is, you know. My my struggle, my fight, my purpose here in America. And at that point, saying where I said, I'm proud to be an American, okay. And that don't mean I got flags or nothing. I just realized that I'm of African descent, but I'm not proud to be an African. I'm not proud to be an Englishman, an Indian, East Indian, or Japanese, or Swede, German, Brit. You know, you go around the world and you see people right up in their face and they know, they tell you who they are by the way they speak and who they are and what, the way they live, you know? And they don't live like we do here in this country. So you get back home, man, and you go, you shrug your shoulders and go, oh, gosh. This is who I am. Now, what are we going to do about it? You know? And, and you start to see the disparity and the, the unlevel playing field, and you just go, hey, I wish everybody could travel and realize where home is and then try to fix that here. You know, because it's all messed up. They got each place I went, they ain't utopia now. <laughs> you know, but it's like, it ain't, it don't feel like home. Right. The struggle is, is absolutely, you know, first and foremost, it is, it is at home. And, um, it is. No, I'm going to say this great, this, this country is so great, man. We all should be feeling it. And we don't feel it. And, and you know who built it. And that's it. You know, I, w- I was thinking about this yesterday, you know, in preparation of, of, of this conversation and listening to this album, you know, the, you know, the issue, I think, I think, and, and I don't know, but I think the, the real issue is, is those, those very first three words, um, and who those, who those words are, are talking about, um we the people and so it, it's we the people it's us it, it, we are the ones that you know um we need to we need to definitely do some things differently we need to um you know not looking stop looking at this as as we have to accept or we have to do this or we have to do that um we're human beings um yeah you know um there's a way that you treat people and um there's a way that you don't treat people and so um we need to maybe be a little more clear on that i don't know mm-hmm. you know the um the other and so i am about to finally let you go um i have mm-hmm. kept you a good portion of the afternoon i want to pleasure robert it has i wanted to close with a final song and and I will do that in a minute um and that track is is off of your new album um the keeping it real album and it is someday we will all be friends 
Oh, I'll be free. Oh, yeah, yeah I'll be free. I'm sorry. Yeah, um, that's all right. You know the um, and so the you know the podcast is is never call me again, and and it's kind of oh <laughs> yeah, yeah right. It's meant to be ironic, and and so you someone says, hey, do you do you want to be on the podcast? The podcast is called Never Call Me Again, and you're probably thinking, why is it called Never Call Me Again? Is he going to is he going to ambush me? What is this? Is he going to make me not want to talk to him again? And and so the point <laughs> is 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 I sat down almost always with people who are complete strangers, acquaintances at best. Um, we've never met. We've never talked. Um, and, and we find friendship. We find common ground. And we, um, we, we then have this relationship and this understanding. And, and so my question to you, Mr. Bobby Watson, is, is can I call you again sometime? Sure. <laughs> Wonderful. Absolutely. Wonderful. Anytime, Robert. Thank you.